Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. British Columbia will today at 1 p.m. Pacific time. The... uh Provincial Officer of Health, Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and uh, the Health Minister provincially, will be holding a news conference to speak to issues specific to British Columbia as their cases have grown significantly. Uh, In Alberta, they've been implementing new restrictions that started yesterday in Alberta to curb the spread of the virus. The province says effective immediately in Calgary and Edmonton, people need to stop hosting social gatherings at home. 25 new cases in Saskatoon. Let's move to Saskatchewan. 20 in Regina. As new restrictions, including the mandatory wearing of masks in indoor public spaces, took effect yesterday in uh, Regina and Saskatoon, where we broadcast. Hello, everybody in Saskatchewan. Also in uh, Prince Albert. And uh, Manitoba, the government of uh, Brian Pallister, increasing restrictions in the Southern Health region. As COVID-19 numbers continue to climb in Ontario, the Peel region has been moved to red risk level, which is just one shy of a lockdown, and uh, Ottawa and York have moved to orange levels. You have to understand what those levels are. Uh, And uh, in Quebec, the Premier says fitness centers, museums, concert halls will not be reopening anytime soon despite a request from Montreal public health officials to roll back COVID-19 red zone restrictions. Premier Legault says he's willing to consider allowing two people to meet, but anything beyond that, according to him, is too risky. I don't have any idea what that means. Two people to meet. I don't know what that means. We'll get more information, I'm sure. So when it comes to COVID-19 and the pandemic, there are many questions being asked. And uh, I've been in touch with our good friend, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist, scientist, uh, doctor at Toronto General Hospital, professor at the University of Toronto. And uh, I've asked him some questions and asked Dr. Bogosh to come back on the program, and he's agreed to do that. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much for the time. And let me start with the first thing that I, uh, that I asked you in that email. So I was on the phone with a friend of mine. This is the first time I've heard this. I've heard this quite a bit. And my friend's saying, look, I've had enough of this. Um, I hear about cases, 700, 500, 900, 1,000. And that really doesn't mean anything to me in a, in a province or a region with millions of people, um, maybe a few hundred people in a hospital, a few people in, in an ICU. What does that mean to me? How come I'm being locked down? So that's, again, not the first time we've heard that, not the first time you've heard that. What's the answer? It's tough to conceptualize if you don't know anyone that's been impacted by this. But unfortunately, more and more of us are being directly impacted by this. Either we've been infected or a family member or someone we know has been infected with this. And you can tell it's actually it's a pretty serious, pretty serious disease. Um, look at the hotspots and look at the hospitals and the hotspots. When we're starting to see hospitals and the hotspots, like in, uh, in Brampton, in uh, Montreal, in Quebec, in uh, Winnipeg, we see these hospitals starting to say, look, guys, like we're running out of room. We're running out of capacity. We're, we're, we don't have ICU beds, for example, in St. Boniface Hospital in, in Winnipeg. <laughs> That's a big problem. That's a big, big problem. That should be a giant red flag that this is not 
something to take lightly. Uh, and, uh, and, and I really hope we take it seriously because we can really prevent a lot of people from getting this infection and getting hospitalized and, and dying from this. So let's go back to the beginning, Dr. Bogash, right to the beginning and what about this virus? Because I think we've kind of skipped past that, um, in many cases. What is this virus? What does it do to you? What does it have the potential to do to you? And how does, again, I know we talked about this in March and February, March yeah. and April, but what is, how does it fit into the demographics of the country? And, uh, well, let's start with that. So, so what is it and how does it fit into the demographics of Canada? So certainly we know it's a respiratory virus, just like we have a lot of other respiratory viruses. I think the most famous one is the flu. And, uh, and you get it by being in close contact with someone, almost always in an indoor setting, but not 100% of the time, just mostly in close contact with people in an indoor setting. Uh, and it makes you really sick. If you are certainly 60 years old and over, you can get very sick from this. Uh, you get a cough, you get a fever, you get shortness of breath. It can affect lots of different organs in the body beyond that. But the big thing that drives people to hospital is fever, cough, shortness of breath. And it can be so severe that you need oxygen, something you can't breathe on your own. You might need an intensive care unit. And it kills. It's killed over 10,000 Canadians. And that's with, I think the other thing you have to watch is we often just look at the deaths. You also have to look at the disability as well. For all those 10,000 people that have died, there's a lot of people that got really, really sick that were in hospital that lived, but still were really, really sick in hospital. So I think that's an important thing to look at. And then there's a lot of people that still have residual symptoms. By and large, the younger you are, the less likely you are going to have severe illness. But if you look at the demographics of Canada, we've got a lot of people over the age of 60. We've got a lot of people that have risk factors for severe illness that aren't just age, but it could be like diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease. Like these, are, these are people that are at risk of getting a serious infection. This isn't something to take lightly. Let's just put it this way. No one should get this infection. I hope people aren't still having the conversation of, oh, it's just the flu. Also, we have to, I don't want to blabber on and on, but just the flu is also bad. Remember, the flu kills a half a million people every year on planet Earth. Like, the flu's a bad illness. You don't want to get the flu either, and you yeah. certainly don't want to get this one. We talked last weekend with a, an infectious diseases historian, my definition, from Ohio State University. He pointed out 14 million people each year die in the world from microbes, and COVID is uh, like bad microbes, which COVID is, so it, it's it's serious business with microbes. Um, does that number sound right to you, by the way? I have to do some back-of-the-envelope math, but that sounds way too small. 14 million? I think it would be way higher than that. Really? When we think about all the deaths from pneumonia, all the deaths from gastrointestinal disease, those are the number one and two killers of kids on the planet. Then we think of all the deaths from malaria, all the deaths from measles. i got to do some back-of-the-envelope calculations, but I, I would have thought it was it would be higher, but I could wow. be wrong. Uh, so just two weeks ago, we heard from cancer surgeons in this country. And I think it was a national story. I'm pretty sure it was. And they were talking about advanced cancers and that they were having to deal with because patients had been reluctant or afraid to go to the hospital, afraid they would catch COVID there. And they might have already been diagnosed with cancer, but they put off going to see seek further treatment. And, and so now we have these cancer surgeons saying that they have to deal with advanced cancers. And I don't know how successful you are with advanced cancer. Most of us in our lives have had an occurrence with cancer, whether it's ourselves or whether it's somebody we cared about. Um, what about that? What do you say to people who, um, I'm going back to the fundamentals here, yeah. people who have something wrong with them, don't feel right, say, I don't want to go to the hospital because I don't want to get it. 
oh, come to the hospital. If you're sick, we are open. You should definitely come to the hospital. You should not delay care. You should not delay care. And you sometimes hear on the in the media, oh, there's an outbreak at this hospital. There's an outbreak at that hospital. We have to remember, what is an outbreak? An outbreak just means you have at least one, sometimes two, depending on how you're defining it, one or two cases that were acquired within the hospital. That's what an outbreak is. Now, sometimes an outbreak can be really big, like uh, the Foothills Hospital in Calgary had a pretty big outbreak. But other times it's like, I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize it. You don't want to have any outbreaks at a hospital. But oftentimes it's a handful of people. It's on an individual ward. It's picked up really quickly. They swoop in. They set up protocols. They test everybody. They isolate people within the hospital. And, and they take care of business quickly. This should not prevent people from getting the care that they need. This should not keep people away from the emergency department or going to your doctor's office. Like this is, you should still be getting high quality health care throughout the pandemic. And just quite frankly, as a health care provider, we are bending over backwards to try facilitate good health care through getting people into the hospital by doing phone visits and e-visits and all this stuff. So we're really trying our best. But uh, if you need care, don't be afraid to seek it. You should really get the care you need. Don't wait till after the pandemic. So we're in the second wave now, correct? Oh, yeah. Well okay. into it. So how do we know? When do we know? How do we find out? How do we determine that uh, the second wave is either under some level of control or is close to being over? When? How do you recognize? Is the second wave, are, are, are the parameters different for the second wave than they were for the first one? Not at all. I think that we're still, these are just the fundamental principles of an epidemic. We, this, this, this virus will continue to chug along and infect people until we give it opportunities to stop those those block those the things we can do to block it is you know vaccinate when a vaccine comes out and until we have a vaccine we have to go back to the same principles that we knew hundreds and even thousands of years ago physical separation that's it it's 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 as simple as that and uh, we know that the levels of immunity in the population are very very low even though we have these high numbers probably no more definitely no more than two percent of Canadians have had this. Uh, so we can't rely on people's prior infection and immunity to, to save us from this. Uh, this can chug along if we don't do the right thing and we don't have a vaccine. This can chug along for a long, long time. We'll know that the second wave is over when we just we're tracking number of new cases per day. When we start to see a sustained reduction in the number of new cases per day and, and that dips low, we can call that the end of the second wave. Hopefully we can do that before a vaccine comes. But honestly, I'm a little pessimistic. I think uh just looking at the numbers across the country, I think we're sadly going to see pretty pretty impressive transmission until we get our act together, and hopefully we get a vaccine sooner rather than later to help get us under control. Okay, I have to take a break in about 30 seconds, and thank you. You're going to stay with us after the break, but let me come back to the first question again, because I know my friend is going to be, and other people are going to be saying, well, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. 500, 600, 700, 800 cases, 1,000 cases. In a population, I'm going to come back to it, because I know I'm going to get bombarded with emails. Sure. Uh, that, that, what's the watershed number? Is, is there one for each province, for each region, for, for each city? Is, is there a number that you say, okay, this is the number we set. Below the number, yeah, go ahead and do what you want to do within reason, understand what the expectations are. And above this number, you really have to pull back or we're going to have to uh, take yeah. action. Is, what's the number? Yeah. So just to put it simply, there are a few metrics that I think are important to look for. Of all the cases that are done, the percent of positive cases is really helpful. You want this really as low as possible. Less than 1% is ideal. Like, that's where we were at in the summer. 
And uh, certainly we could talk about number of cases per 100,000 people per week. We could talk about uh, um, uh, hospital occupancy. Like there's a lot that would go into that. So it wouldn't be just one metric. But in general, if you were able to, I I don't think getting to zero cases is very realistic and and it's not really a realistic option to discuss. But if we were to significantly lower the rates of transmission in the community and have methods and strategies to keep it low, sort of patting out little fires wherever they started to emerge, I think we could do well from a health standpoint, from a public health standpoint and from an economic standpoint. As an infectious diseases doc and scientist, what are you doing? How are you involved with COVID? Oh, my God. Got an hour? Okay. Yeah, sure. Well, so Go I ahead. Yeah. A few things. Number one, patient care. I'm on the wards a lot, either caring for people with COVID or caring for people without COVID that are hospitalized with different infections. Number two, I still have my other 18 jobs that we're doing. So I'm doing a lot of research looking at how COVID is transmitted and where it's transmitted in ways that we could best prevent this. Number three, I still am involved with medical education. And like my job before COVID, I still involve a lot of teaching with the medical students, have teaching duties with medical students and trainees. Number four, I speak. I'm on several committees, many official, some non-official, where we work with uh, governments, uh, federal and provincial governments to uh, better, you know, come up strategies strategies to combat COVID, either on diagnostics or policy or whatever. So it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's what I do. In okay. Yeah. So there's two of you. Um, yeah, exactly. I see so, my family once in a while. I'm sure they're, they're glad to see you and you still make time for us on the weekend. I appreciate that. Um, vaccines. Oh yeah. Right. Vaccines. Now there's a reduced number of people in this country. Polling shows it. We're going to talk about this a little later on. In the program, when Carolyn Jarvis will join us from Global News, um, Chief Investigative Correspondent on a um, two-part series that uh, Global News is carrying, carried yesterday and today. Now, the vaccines, fewer people are, are committed to it. More people are concerned. There's even conflict within the within the health profession, uh, the health industry, about, about vaccines. Um, are we going to see a vaccine that's actually going to be stop this thing in its tracks or will we have a vaccine that will mitigate against it and require booster shots and when people say you'll have a vaccine in 2021 are they telling the truth a couple points one i'm optimistic based on data i'm looking at the data that we've seen so far from the various companies i'm 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 optimistic and i always bet on human ingenuity and if the first generation of vaccines is good the second generation of vaccines is going to be better The second thing is, yeah, I think we will have a vaccine in 2021. I think we're actually, I feel embarrassed because I've been on your show months ago saying, yeah, we'll probably hear about these trials in the summer or in the early fall. Yeah. And of course, we haven't heard about the results of these trials. November, we've heard from at least two of the companies that are at the most advanced phases of these clinical trials that we're going to hear about some of the preliminary results this month. So buckle up. This is going to come at us quickly because there's probably three companies, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, that are at the most advanced stages of their clinical trials, and we'll very likely hear about them in November or December, but most likely at least one of them will hear in November. The what do you say? Thing is, oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, oh, please the, go ahead. The third, the third point is that once they release their data, the FDA in the United States, Health Canada here at home, will pour over all the data. And in fact, some of the companies are releasing their data incrementally to these independent government bodies 
so that they can pull up the data as it comes out to say, you know, is this safe enough? Is this effective enough? If it's safe enough and effective enough in these phase three clinical trials, we're either going to get the thumbs up. And if it isn't, we'll get the thumbs down. If it gets the thumbs up, they're already mass producing vaccines that might not even ever make it through these clinical trials. They're already being mass produced. Canada's already looking at ways to ship uh, vaccines all across the country. And you have to, these aren't flu vaccines. These need to be stored in minus 80. So it's the, the, the logistics of, of delivering this is going to be huge, but they've already put out a tender to find uh, companies that will help d- distribute the vaccine throughout the country. They've already bought 37 million vials. We already know that most of these vaccines that are at their advanced stage are going to require two shots separated by 28 days. This is a logistical nightmare, but they've already started working on it, and we don't even have the results of a phase three clinical trial yet. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 